Find out what the whole world is thinking in The Agenda. This week on The Agenda, start your engines. We're on the road at the British Motor Show to find out what's driving change in the auto sector. Fancy a ride in this? Well, you're going to need $2 million. In fact, these few cars here together are worth $11 million. This Ferrari is essentially a racing car that's been remodeled for the road. But you know what, this is quite a niche part of the auto sector. It's an industry which is struggling with supply chain issues, the soaring costs of raw materials, and a sometimes reticent consumer base who are thinking, should we go electric or do we even need to own a car at all? So what's the industry doing to put the brakes on that? So I'm Steve Nash. Uh, I'm the chief executive of the Institute of the Motor Industry, which is the automotive industry's professional body. And we're UK based, but operate in around 50 plus countries around the world. You've been in this business for decades. You could say that you eat, sleep and breathe engine oil. I'm certainly <laughs> a, an automotive person, yeah. Yeah, I have been. What would you say are the biggest challenges the sector faces right now? Oh, a number of challenges. Um, skills is a big challenge, but I mean, look, right, Right at this very moment, uh, we've got all of the challenges coming out of the pandemic, the problems that are arising as a result of the conflict in Ukraine. So supply issues are a big thing. Just at a time when we're looking to get people to move into electric vehicles, the manufacturers are actually having to bias, well, they're naturally biasing towards their upper range cars because if you've only got so many microchips or so many other raw materials to put into cars, what are you going to do? You're going to put them in the most expensive cars. And that's actually, to some extent, slowing the transition because we're wanting to move that further down market. You talk about that transition and that, of course, is the transition to becoming carbon neutral. Yeah. And there's been a, a bit of a green milestone in the UK, hasn't there, with now over half a million all electric vehicles yes. being sold. But it's not just about that, is it? You need a workforce that can support it. You certainly do. I mean, look, we believe that probably around 2026, the, the, the number of electrified vehicles, and I, I'm including plug-in hybrids and other hybrids in that, will will actually overtake internal combustion engines. And then, of course, be, in the UK beyond 2030, internal combustion engines are, are finished, or pure internal combustion engines. But yes, I mean, we have about a quarter of a million people in the UK who spend every day working on servicing and repairing cars. We're gonna need a, about 90,000 of them to be qualified to work on electric vehicles by 2030. But it takes a big uptick after that because once the internal combustion engine cars aren't being sold anymore, by 2032, we need 111,000 and it will go on up from there. So yeah, there's a big job to do. So this is all happening very fast. And of course the pandemic coming in the middle of it, meaning that for a couple of years, it was difficult to train people, uh, means we got some catching up to do. And also due to the pandemic, lots of people left the industry and a lot of them of a certain age aren't coming back. So you've got a gap there. Well, I mean, yeah, there's, there's a number of things happening there. If, if I just talk for a moment from a UK perspective, first of all, we had Brexit. So we lost an awful lot of people who left the UK as a result of Brexit. But we have had this general situation where the number of people now of, who, of work age who are not economically active is at an all-time high. It's, it's, it's about 20% of, of, of the working population. It's not working. In automotive, right now, we have 
something like 23,000 vacancies in the UK, which is at an all-time high. And does that change from region to region? We've talked quite a bit about the UK, but you work with yeah. the sector across the globe. Well, the change to electrification is, a, is having a huge effect around the world. Uh, we do a lot of work in China, for example. In China, they have many thousands of young people who they need to train uh, to have the skills to work on electric vehicles. That's a, that's a, whilst they have de facto, they have a big workforce, the, the level of qualification isn't there at this moment in time. And we're working with the Department for International Trade to take our international qualifications into China. And they have a huge, a voracious appetite for it, actually. And not just China, Malaysia, uh, other parts of Southeast Asia. Actually, surprisingly, maybe for a lot of people, we do a lot of work in Germany and other parts of Europe. I know you spent many, many years um, yeah. there in, in the UK. And they said that car companies are now becoming more software companies, more technology companies rather than mobility companies. Do you think that's what we're seeing? Absolutely we are. I mean, look, the, the, the thing is, people think cars are getting simpler, and in one sense they are. I mean, an electric car has got a lot less moving parts than an internal combustion engine car. But at the same time as we're electrifying, we're, we're, we've got a massive growth of what we call uh, um, uh, ADAS, or Advanced Driver Assistance Systems. So you have a plethora of these systems on the cars, which means that the, the, the garage of the future, even more than today, and it, it's already happening today, will be about um, software engineering, programming. I think there was quite a lot of discussion about the fact that people would buy a car which would have heated seats for, for three months, and then they would be turned off, and if, if you want them for a price, we can switch them back on. You know what I mean? And it, it's, but that's the world we're moving into. All of the things you talk about require a particular piece of technology, don't they? Yeah. The semiconductor chips, and there's a real logjam on those. When all of the factory shutdowns happened in, in the pandemic, the auto manufacturers who, who as, as I, I, I'm sure you know, work on this very much a complete just-in-time sort of principle where everything they need for today literally gets delivered today, um, they shut off their requirements for, for semiconductors. Well, that coincided with a big uptake of computers, uh, home entertainment systems, game systems and things, because people were at home. But there, there have been other shortages as well, aluminium, some of the other raw materials that have um, you know, had an effect on supplies. And of course, we know that the conflict in Ukraine, a lot of manufacturers made their wiring harnesses and things in Ukraine. I mean, they're beginning to find other sources for that. But um, uh, yeah, the microchips is the thing that, that has hit the headlines. So what contingencies do companies that operate in the auto sector need to make to protect themselves from, from these kinds of well, bottlenecks? that's a really good question. And I think for the last 25, 30 years, we've sort of worshipped at the altar of just in time. So um, bringing, the, bringing supply chain closer, we'll, we'll see things like greater adoption of 3D printing to literally make things on site when they're needed. And which manufacturers are leading the way, do you think, in terms of these innovations, in terms of keeping pace of change? Who would you say, right, they're a shining example, be more like them? I think it's actually proving easier for, in many ways for the, for the new entrants to the market to come into the EV space than it is for the existing players who are trying to ride two horses at once. You know, they're trying to keep the old engine going whilst they're building something new. Um, so I think 
you know, you've got some really innovative new companies coming out of China, companies like Neo and people like that who make really interesting and good products. And, uh, you know, I think that the, the industry in 10 years' time will look quite different. The big established players, Volkswagen Group, you would expect, I mean, are piling into this you know, big time. I mean, Herbert Deese, who's just stepped down as their chief executive, who I know from BMW days, you know, um, uh, did a brilliant job of turning them around and getting them on the EV path across the whole group. Um, you know, nobody can afford not to now, can they? So if automotive is becoming more of a mobility story than it is from getting us from A to B, and a manufacturing story, what, what does that mean for the big auto players? Today, the, the top technicians uh, working on new internal combustion engine cars don't necessarily need to know anything about carburetors, you know, because it's old technology. And that's just the way things move. So I, I, I think, you know, we're seeing lots of discussions around changes to the distribution model, to the move from franchise dealers to agency models and things like that. It's, it's, it really is, I know it's been said before and it's a little bit sort of um, become a little bit of a, a cliche, but it really is an unprecedented level of change. You would have to go back to the dawn of the motor industry really to, to see that level of change. Steve Nash, CEO of the IMI, thank you very much. No, it's been a pleasure. From classics to family runarounds, from electric vehicles to high performance rides, there are more vehicle brands at this British Motor Show than at any UK car event since 2008. And that's despite some of the challenges in the supply of new cars. Let's talk about the real world of motoring cars and people with Louise Wallace. She's the head of business at the National Franchise Dealers Association. Great to see you. Now, are people buying cars because we're being encouraged to switch to electric what's the story on the forecourt people are definitely coming into showrooms they're interested in buying cars interested in ev cars particularly um main issue at the moment is supply of getting those cars to people quickly um, there are quite considerable waiting lists to actually get delivery of a vehicle but once they come through people are taking hold of them and are enjoying them that's the thing isn't it it doesn't count as a sale until it's actually rolled off the forecourt. Yeah, that is the real problem. And it's not the orders that count when it looks at registration numbers, it's cars that are physically registered. And until they are in this country and with the dealer, they can't be registered. What, what kind of delays and supply issues are we looking at? It can vary depending on make and, and uh, model, um, but anything from three to six months is not unusual and definitely 12 months for some models that are in short supply, very short supply. There's a real appetite for, for second-hand cars and that's pushed the prices of those up quite a lot as well. What's going on? Same sort of issue. I mean, if you can't deliver a new vehicle, then there's no part exchange vehicles coming through. So there's a supply shortage. Also, a lot of fleets that would normally defleet cars can't defleet them at the moment because they can't get new cars to replace them. Car hire firms can't get cars to put on their own fleets and then to defleet a second-hand car. So it's just pure shortage again. Um, typical just demand and supply economics really. To what extent though do you think people still want to own cars? It's talked about as the second biggest purchase that we'll make in our lifetimes after a property. It, with the current cost of living crisis, are people moving away from that and thinking well maybe I'll lease one, maybe I'll just use one when I need to? 
there is certainly some trends, um, particularly in certain demographics, such as younger people who are looking at hiring cars rather than necessarily buying a car. But predominantly, people still want to buy a car. They might look at different makes and models because either they want something slightly cheaper or they can't get hold of what they particularly want. And of course, a lot of people are looking at EVs over traditional petrol and diesel because that's what we're, what we're being encouraged to buy at the moment. So what's the, the message you're getting from a lot of your dealerships? You know, are, are, are they worried about the future? Is it, is it business as usual? What's changed? Business is pretty much as usual in the sense that they're still doing the job as they've always done the job. The issue is the frustration of not being able to get cars to customers. Um, but the hope is that that will start to ease, um, particularly as we get towards the back end of this year um, and certainly into next year. But yeah, dealers are still dealers are still selling cars. It's definitely getting orders in. So UK, the UK is still hungry for cars. Yes, I mean the one thing, particularly with things like train strikes and issues with public transport, and of course the issue of COVID and people wanting their own space for commuting, cars are still very popular. But it's not really that golden era of car ownership anymore, is it? Or do you think that electric vehicles might change that? I think people will be hungry to buy electric vehicles. People do still like to have their own personal mobility. So I think cars will always be popular with people unless some other form of transport comes through that is equally as flexible and as desirable. But we're not there yet. <laughs> in the UK and in many other parts of the world, we're in the midst of a cost of living crisis, a cost of electricity, which we're being told we need to plug in for, for vehicles of the future is going up and up. How concerned are you and your members of the impact that's going to have on the sector? It's a concern particularly in getting EV take up because people may well think that actually buying an electric vehicle could be expensive to charge. Um, what it may well do is actually boost the second-hand market in pet petrol and diesel cars potentially because at the moment petrol and diesel prices are beginning to come down again so if people are looking at whole cost of owning a vehicle they may well look at other alternatives for electric vehicle which is a bit of a concern when we're trying to go for a green environment and get people into electric vehicles but that will be a challenge for the industry to, to sort out. Louise Wallace thank you. Coming up sustainable fuel and car subscriptions but will they really make driving and owning a motor greener and cheaper? Find out what the whole world is thinking in The Agenda. Welcome back to The Agenda. In the drive towards net zero, we need to think about how we power our vehicles. There's a lot of conversation about electric cars, but what about renewable fuel solutions? Well, to discuss that, I'm joined by David Richardson. He's the Business Development Director at Coriton. So what are sustainable fuels and how are they different to gasoline and diesel? Okay, so sustainable fuels are quite simply fuels that we are replacing with their fossil equivalent. We're trying to stop digging uh, oil out the ground, which has a lot of embedded CO2 in them. And instead, what we're doing is we're taking waste materials and CO2 from the atmosphere and we're converting that back into a liquid that we use today, uh, you know, we're familiar with. Uh, and the aim is just to recycle the CO2 um, that we've already put into the atmosphere. Why do you think they're important? 
Uh, there's, a, there's a number of reasons why these kind of fuels are really important to, to the industry, to the world. Firstly, uh, we have to look at multiple technologies to, to help us reduce our effect on the environment. Electrification is going to be there, it's going to get there eventually, but we're just not there yet. We need more time to progress, to optimise those technologies. But in the meantime, we need to do something else about the internal combustion engine. 270 million cars on the roads today, they are all internal combustion engine. You've got to do something about fixing those. Let's remember the internal combustion engine is not the issue, it's what we fuel that internal combustion engine with. So are you saying this is not to replace the concept of electric vehicles, something maybe to run alongside it? Absolutely, it's complementary. Um, we, we always say, and you'll hear this phrase a lot of times, there's no silver bullet to fixing the environment. Let's embrace all the technologies. Let's get everyone to make sure that they are supporting them. So do you think that biofuels and e-fuels are the only sustainable solution when it comes to replacing what we've got in combustion engines that are on the roads now? Uh, no, there are clearly many other technologies that can help alongside sustainable fuels. We also have the gases as well. You will have heard about hydrogen. There's a lot of work going on within the industry to help support hydrogen. You can adapt engines relatively easy to run on hydrogen. There is LPG. There's a, there are many other things that we can look to support those technologies. You talk about government support. So can you point to any country, any region that, that might be getting it right? I mean, for example, when it comes to electric car sales, Norway is leading the way there with around 70% of new car sales being electric cars. Is there a similar impetus anywhere when it comes to biofuels? Uh, yeah, so um, there, are, there are countries, there are regions that, that, that have been getting this right. I mean, we, you know, you can look at Norway as a really prime example of how they've embraced electrification. Um, you need to remember that different countries have different requirements uh, and different uh, issues around who can afford what technology. Now, if we look at Scandinavia, uh, away from the electrification side of it, Sweden particularly, really pioneered biofuels a long, long time ago by uh, supporting uh, flex fuel vehicles. So these are your high uh, ethanol types of fuels. So they've got that right, but that was just a first step. Actually, if we look at what the UK is doing behind the scenes, Actually, they're supporting a lot of these biofuels and the technologies that go into them. We know the electrification is not going to get where we need to be in 2030, 2035. We need something else to help us achieve our net zero goals. We believe that sustainable fuels is a way of doing that. So from the consumer point of view, how do you do that? Do you need to pay to get your car modified? Where can you fill up? So the great thing about the sustainable fuels that are being developed now is they are imperceptible in terms of their use. There is no modifications to cars, there should be no modification to the infrastructure that supports and supplies those fuels, and therefore we don't have to really think about the exceptional costs that come with maybe converting cars. You don't need to make any changes, um, but I'm thinking about how you develop those biofuels. You're talking about reusing to an extent, but also you're using crops, so you need land for that. And while we're in the midst of a food crisis, is there impetus to, to use that land for biofuels rather than food? Using crops for biofuels is tricky because you clearly, especially in today's climate, there's a lack of food resource for a lot of developing countries. And, and you look at grain particularly that is used to use things like ethanol, uh, and we use a lot of ethanol in some of these processes. 
but it's not the only process. We talk about silver bullet and we should have a, a myriad of technologies. There are also technologies that are using CO2 from the atmosphere. Um, and so therefore that's not competing. You know, we can extract CO2, we can put it through some very clever processes and we can convert that back into a liquid hydrocarbon that you can still use today. So therefore we're not competing with the food element. However, when we are using biogenic feedstocks, we're looking at the waste element of them. You know, we want to take the the, the, the stalks of, of, of those of the wheat crop um, and, and, and actually anything that you can ferment, we can create a fuel from and we can make it look and behave the way a normal fuel does. You've been working in the background for, for, for many years when it comes to biofuels and these new technologies and you've only more recently started shouting about it. What would it really take to, to make a difference? If, if everyone switched to biofuels tomorrow, would it really solve the problem? Biofuels today can make that immediate impact because they are not contributing to CO2 into that atmosphere. So yes, it can happen today, but we need support from the governments to help scale up the technologies, the plants that are using them. But the important thing about that is that most of these technologies can be bolted onto existing infrastructure and therefore the impact of doing that is minimal, the cost impact is minimal, but we just need the support. Politicians, the governments, but also the automotive industry, the oil industry, everyone just needs to get on board and say, yes, that's a way that we can do that. We appreciate it's not as cheap as oil, but it's going to have a positive impact for everyone and we all have our futures to think about. David Richardson, thank you very much. Thank you. It might sound cheaper to run a hybrid or an electric vehicle, but that initial outlay, the, the upfront cost, is making some people park the idea of owning an electric car altogether. But one company, Elmo, is trying to make our electric dreams more affordable. So let's talk to the co-founder and managing director, Ollie Jones. Well, thanks ever so much for talking to us. So, you know, first of all, tell us a little bit about the company. You've sort of merged electric vehicles and mobility. That's right. That's that's in the name. Um, and it really, the, what we're trying to do, the mission is to make switching to electric car unbelievably easy. So, in a, in a world of Netflix and Spotify, consumers expect uh, increased flexibility and reduced commitment. And this is especially true when it comes to electric cars. And what we're seeing is people, because of this lack of confidence, they're not ready to commit to paying a you know, huge upfront fee to buy, to buy a vehicle. They're not ready to commit to a, a multi-year, you know, two, three, four year lease because they think, well, what if it doesn't work for me? What am I gonna do then? So with our subscription model, which is a new thing for many people in car terms, what it allows people to do is um, to book a car have it delivered within a week, they don't bear deposit, and they can hand it back anytime by giving 30 days notice. In addition to that, the subscription package includes everything you need to run the car. So that's insurance and breakdown, um, tax and, and tires. It sounds like you're saying that the generations of drivers of the future don't want to own a car. I wouldn't go as far as to say that everyone, like it's a, it, it will definitely split up across demographics. Um, but we certainly think that we're, we've reimagined the traditional lease for modern consumers and we're trying to use it as a mechanism to accelerate mass adoption of electric cars. What makes you think that a subscription model change in the way 
that we buy cars or that we buy into motoring um, is going to increase the uptake of electric vehicles? Because it helps people overcome those barriers that we talked about, that, that upfront cost, people don't want to put down a deposit or, or to buy the car, that fear around charging and infrastructure and lifestyle, we're giving people an easy way in, a low risk way in, because of the flexibility and the wrapped up convenience of the package, it's, it's so easy for them to get out of it if it doesn't work or to continue using it if it does work. It's interesting that you say that this concept is quite new to motoring. Is this a first for the UK market or is it successful maybe in other parts of the world? It is successful in Germany in particular. They've seen great success with car subscriptions. The US is a bit further behind. It's, it's starting to pop up all over the place. We've even got manufacturers um, beginning to do their own subscription offering. I think in the UK market, I think the figures were that at the end of 2020, there are about 5,000 subscription vehicles uh, in the UK. And according to this bit of research, that number was set to increase to 600,000 by 2025, which in vehicle terms, in vehicle asset terms, is a, a pretty staggering bit of growth. Fantastic. Ollie Jones, thank you very much. Thank you very much. Coming up on a future agenda, time to detox. How much time on social media is too much? But for now, from me, Juliet Mann, from Jack, and from all of the Agenda team here at the British Motor Show, goodbye.